Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. It's springtime in Florida, and it's the halfway point of this season. And every season, I like to take a second and collect some of my favorite little stories, ones that got edited out of the episodes this season for one reason or another. Today's episode is all about those little stories, the footnotes of the stories we've told so far, the things you notice and consider for just a moment, only to move on without a second thought. I'm a big lover of footnotes as an idea. When you read history books, you'll often find an asterisk next to a word directing you to a footnote. Other times, they'll be slipped into the narrative quickly in parentheses. It's something I really enjoy as a reader because it means that the author couldn't just let go of that story or that fact or detail. It's not necessarily essential to the narrative, or it would be part of the narrative, but it's still important or interesting enough to be included at least in some small way. Great history books often feel like a conversation, like the person is sitting down and telling you this story honestly while injecting bits of their personality to let the story grow. The footnotes or the sidebars can sometimes be the most personality bursting through the pages. I recently read a book called The Field of Blood by Dr. Joanne Freeman, and each time the book popped into an extended parenthetical story, I knew it was something that Dr. Freeman just had to include in the book. I savor those moments, they're something special, and that book is really an amazing read. But sometimes those footnotes, those asides, they don't make a big enough story to wield anything more than that, a parting glance. And sometimes they deserve a little more. Like, for example, the story of how the Christmas bird count by Audubon really came to be. It starts with a man named Frank M. Chapman. You see, Frank Chapman was sick of being a banker. It was 1886, and as he sat behind the desk as a clerk, he was desperate to return to his true passion, birding. Slowly over his years working at the bank, whenever he had a free day, he would go and work with the earliest version of the National Audubon Society. He made friends in the birding community at the exact same time that the Audubon was ramping up its war against those who were using bird parts in hats. Millinery was having a serious impact on bird populations nationwide, especially on egrets, especially in Florida, and Audubon was defending the birds in any way they could. As time wore on and his position at the bank solidified, Frank Chapman felt his soul being torn asunder. In personal writings at the time, he described that he was on a collision course where, quote, there would soon be a serious conflict between the bank clerk and the birdman, end quote. He had just turned 24 years old a few months earlier, and after six years of doing the sensible job, he resigned his post at the bank and pivoted fully into his passion of ornithology. He departed the American Exchange National Bank in New York City and moved, at least temporarily, to Gainesville, Florida, where his mother had a winter home. He took up residency there and was finally able to pursue his passion of observing and writing about the natural birds, especially here in Florida. Eighty years after his first arrival in Florida, his journals and writings would be published as an extensive collection of all that he saw while living in Gainesville. By summer of 1887, Chapman had observed 581 birds. There was plenty for him to see, and he was savoring every moment. When he returned to the North in the summer months, he would work at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, commuting from his hometown in Englewood, New Jersey, to New York City. He noted at the time that it was the same trip he would take back when he worked at the bank, only now, the monotony of his life had faded. 
Now, every day as he sat down at his desk, he was no longer doing bank work that he did not enjoy. He was now pursuing the career that he loved so dearly. His few months in Florida alongside his friends in the Audubon had taken the young man and turned him into a full-fledged ornithologist at just the age of 25. He published a scientific paper, started taking photographs of the birds he was seeing, and he returned to Florida time and again. It was there in Florida, quote, in a stern wheel flat bottom houseboat, end quote, drifting along the flat waters of Lake Okeechobee when his life changed forever. He received a letter from Dr. Allen at the American Museum of Natural History. Dr. J.A. Allen was the curator of birds and animals at the American Museum, and now, with the reception of this letter, Chapman was to be Dr. Allen's assistant. He resigned his post on the boat, rushed to a train station, and traveled north to assume his new role at the museum. Three months shy of his 26th birthday, Frank M. Chapman had secured his dream job. He would eventually rise in the ranks until he was the curator of birds at the American Museum of Natural History by 1908. Nearly every year, he would return to Florida at least once and set out on a new expedition, always briefly stopping by his mother's home in Gainesville, where it had all changed for him so many years before. It was at the turn of the century, as a countermeasure to a popular hunting event nationwide, that Frank M. Chapman devised the very first version of a now popular Audubon practice. Nationwide, at Christmas time, hunters would go out and shoot large populations of birds and count how many dead birds or animals they gathered all at once. This was antithetical to Audubon's entire ethos, and Chapman, whose passion for birds drove his entire life onto a new course so many years ago, proposed an alternate event. Every year, at Christmas time, he proposed a Christmas bird count, specifically designed to count the birds and send them on their way with no harm. It's 120 years later, and the bird count still exists, run by the Audubon itself. Additionally, Eagle Watch, which is run by Florida Audubon and our friend and former guest of the show, Sean Lee Breeding, is, in many ways, the next step in a long chain of events that began with a 24-year-old man quitting his crummy job as a bank clerk in New York City. Florida is in the backstory of its own history, it seems, albeit in a roundabout way. Thanks to Frank M. Chapman. And not all footnotes are that much of a straight line. Sometimes they're a detour, as is the case of the Big Sombrero, Tampa's original football stadium. Earlier this year, we talked about the Big Sombrero and its relationship with the Buccaneers, the first Super Bowl in Tampa, the tragic second Super Bowl in Tampa, and of course, the third, where Tom Brady led the Bucs to their second Super Bowl win. They were not only the first football team to play the Super Bowl in their home stadium, but also the first to win the Super Bowl in their home stadium. Raymond James was rocking that night, and I can't imagine the city of Tampa has yet recovered from their monumental win. If you thought things were crazy on that night in February of 2021, however, wait until you hear about June of 1977. One night in Tampa, the Big Sombrero was the venue of a riot. When the Buccaneers came to Tampa in 1976, the city was thrilled to have their own team at last. The excitement was soon quashed, however, as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers opened their first season with a stunning 0-14 records. They lost every single game in their debut year, including seven home games on their own turf at the Big Sombrero. 
it doesn't stop there, unfortunately. Going into the following season in 1977, the Bucks would go on to lose consistently yet again, losing 12 straight games in their second season. It wasn't until December 11th, 1977 that the Bucks got a win against the New Orleans Saints in New Orleans. Their last game of the season was against the St. Louis Cardinals and it was played in Tampa. They mercifully beat the Cardinals 17-7, making it the first home field win for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on December 18th, 1977, on the 28th game of their existence. They got better the next year, but not by much. However, it was not that miserable pair of seasons in 1976 or 77 that led to the riot at the Big Sombrero. Rather, it was caused by, in my opinion, one of the greatest rock bands in music history, Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin had been on the scene for close to a decade by this time. In their first few years, they rocketed to stardom, and by the early 70s, they were one of the biggest touring rock bands in the world. Their album, Houses of Holy, was released 40 years ago yesterday, actually, on the 28th of March, 1973. It was a smash hit despite mixed reviews, and it actually has my favorite Led Zeppelin song on it, Over the Hills and Far Away. But what really elevates the entire album from a historical standpoint is not the record itself or its sales, it was the accompanying tour. See, up to that point, the biggest performance by a single band at a single venue was the Beatles and their iconic Shea Stadium concert a few years earlier in 1965. But Led Zeppelin's stadium tour was on a path toward history and, naturally, that was going to occur in Florida. It always seems to. On May 5th, 1973, 56,000 people flooded into the Big Sombrero, years before the Bucks even existed, to see Led Zeppelin breaking the previous record held by the Beatles. Led Zeppelin now owned the title of the biggest concert ever, thanks to the Big Sombrero and the state of Florida. A few years later, in 1976, their seventh studio album, Presence, comes out, and in 1977, they begin another massive tour. They announced a return to Tampa, to the Big Sombrero, where they had broken that record a few years earlier. It was guaranteed to be a massive event. Could they go past it? Could they break their record again? Well, on June 3rd, 1977, Led Zeppelin took to the stage and indeed they beat their previous number with 70,000 fans packing the stands. Here is actually a clip from the beginning of the show. After three songs, a typical Florida thunderstorm surged into town. Pouring onto the fans below, Led Zeppelin stepped off stage, promising to return shortly. There seems to be some water falling on the electrical equipment. So we're going to give it a 15 minute break. Are you cool? They didn't. And the concert was soon postponed. They said 15 minutes. And then after much longer than 15 minutes, the concert was canceled. Now, keep in mind, people had been waiting for hours in Florida summer heat. The doors had opened before noon, and then a storm rained on all of them, so they were likely dehydrated, soaking wet, and honestly, probably quite inebriated. And on top of that, their band had just canceled the show, so things went haywire. 
Led Zeppelin's official website includes an article from the Times saying that something around three or four thousand fans went ballistic and broke out in a quote-unquote small riot. They damaged show equipment and pounded on the stage, demanding the band to return to perform. Hundreds of police officers entered the scene in riot gear wielding clubs, and the two groups clashed in the stadium and in the parking lot. Nearly a hundred Zeppelin fans were injured, a dozen police officers were injured as well, and close to 30 car accidents occurred as a result of the riot. Images from the scene are brutal, and eyewitness accounts share that the field was literally covered in rain-soaked debris. Those who left the scene said afterward that the ticket said, quote-unquote, rain or shine. That was clearly not the case. The postponed concert scheduled for the following day was canceled, and by Monday, the mayor of Tampa, William Poe, had banned Led Zeppelin from ever performing in Tampa again. Near as I can tell, they never did. If you do any searching into this event, you'll find hundreds of eyewitness accounts all sharing the chaos from wherever they encountered it. It's just one of those moments that could never be forgotten, despite the fact that the Big Sombrero is now a parking lot. Now that's a very specific story at a very specific location. Sometimes, however, when you're covering subjects over very large periods of time, you see side roads you can wander down, characters or events that are undoubtedly fascinating, but you don't have time for them, you have to let them go. And in this case, I actually tweeted about this little side detail because it's so fascinating and all my dear friends demanded it be included in the episode, but alas, it was cut. Now I've got the time, so at last, I'd like to tell you about an incredible story, the murder of LaSalle. His full name is René Robert Cavillier Sur de La Salle. Born in France in 1643, LaSalle tried at being a priest until he found his heart yearned for adventure. For the previous centuries, European colonizers had been sending ships across the Atlantic to see what was out there, and LaSalle had found that calling himself. By 1666, he was on a boat for Canada where he was promised land. In Montreal, with his new land, LaSalle built promising partnerships and opportunities in the quote-unquote new world. He worked with the French military and built a new fort near the Great Lakes. Louis XIV was impressed with him and saw that a confident traveler and visionary like LaSalle could be just what France needed in expanding their colonies along the Gulf of Mexico. LaSalle himself was obsessed with exploring the Mississippi River, which was now understood to be a major waterway through the continent. He attempted several different expeditions down the Mississippi, but they were all cut short or unsuccessful. He dreamed of traveling down its waters and hopefully establishing more forts there as well. Then, in 1682, LaSalle and his ally Henry de Tonti, an Italian explorer, made their way down the Mississippi and eventually reached the Gulf of Mexico itself. There, to honor his king, LaSalle claimed the entire Mississippi River Basin for France. He named it Louisiana. On his trip south, he formed a fort in present-day Tennessee, and on the way back north, he formed another in Illinois. Neither were near present-day Louisiana, but it was enough. The name clearly stuck. Though enemies in Canada were looking to take his titles from him, Louis XIV defended La Salle, ensured his position, and praised him for his expeditions on behalf of the Kingdom of France. If he had stopped there, with all the forts under his name, the praise from the king, and success at his back, Perhaps LaSalle's life would have been one of blissful basking in his various accomplishments, but 
ever the adventurer, LaSalle wanted more. Remember that at this time, France and Spain were constantly at odds with each other, vying for land in North America. Spain had taken Mexico, and LaSalle wanted to have a strong French foothold along the Gulf of Mexico, perhaps a fort or a town to rival Spain's control of that body of water. LaSalle appealed to the king, suggesting alliances with native groups in the area, as well as buccaneers plumbing the Gulf of Mexico. If they joined together, they would be an unstoppable force. Louis XIV gave full approval and LaSalle set off for his next great success. He was, however, not a competent military man. He fought frequently with his naval commanders, misguiding them as to where they were supposed to be going. They largely overshot the mouth of the Mississippi where they were intending to lay some plans. Rather, they went much, much further west into present-day Texas, by some estimates 500 miles away from where he was trying to go. One ship sank, another fully abandoned the mission, and the one that LaSalle led attempted to complete their task. Once the ship had landed, they moved up the Lavaca River, nowhere near the Mississippi, in search of a connection, but found none. Instead, they found starvation and death. LaSalle abandoned this first trip, but was confident he could find his Mississippi River. He had tried and failed before, but it always worked out in the end for him, right? With a new group of explorers at his back, LaSalle set up the Lavaca River, his own ignorance leading to his downfall. Three years after suggesting this plan to Louis XIV, LaSalle's ideas finally were much larger than his ability to execute them. After losing hundreds of men to this lost cause, his men mutinied and LaSalle was murdered by his own crew on March 19, 1687. He was 43. It's said that 36 of his men were part of the mutiny and that he himself was shot at point-blank range in the chest. LaSalle's murderer, Pierre Duhat, was then killed as revenge for LaSalle's death. And then, by most accounts, it's said that the remainder of LaSalle's men murdered each other, seeking vengeance for the catastrophe out in the Texas wilderness. Apparently, there were only two survivors. Who knows what the Gulf Coast would look like today if LaSalle had succeeded. It would be another 30-something years until a city was indeed formed at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Today, we call it New Orleans. LaSalle's life and controversy surrounding his movements along the coast of the Gulf of Mexico are just one in a long series of events that led to West Florida's involvement in the American Revolution, which we discussed at length at the beginning of this season. So many names and battles and places are interwoven in this region and time period, but LaSalle's story is perhaps the most bombastic, let's say. I often find that histories have no actual ending. LaSalle died, but the story goes on from there. France just kept trying to colonize the Gulf of Mexico. And stories don't really have a beginning. Frank M. Chapman was one character in the story of Audubon's war against millinery, but that story began long before he ever quit his job at the bank. Each and every word of each and every story in history could be pulled like a thread and lead you unraveling into some other whole different story. I like to think of these stories as us dipping our head into the waters of history for just a moment, from one specific moment to another, and letting go, knowing there's a whole ocean of stories left to be seen. And sometimes the stories are small, a detail, an event, one day in someone's life, a person or an event who maybe was meant to just be a footnote, like our banker turned birder, or our dehydrated and furious Led Zeppelin fans, or our hubristic and ignorant LaSalle. 
Other times, though, it's best to leave the story as a footnote, as someone else has already told it much better. That is the case in the footnote to our most recent episode about Plant City's incredible history with the Strawberry Queens. In my conversation with Shelby Bender, we covered decade upon decade of city history, festival history, and most importantly, Strawberry Queen history. There's one little anecdote from that story that Shelby throws in at the end. You see, there was an article written in The New Yorker back in 2008, a genuinely staggering and incredible profile about the Strawberry Court and the Strawberry Queen of that year. If you want to learn about the 21st century Strawberry Queens, you have to read that article. It was written by the legendary journalist Anne Hull. It's called The Strawberry Girls. It is an honest-to-goodness must-read. I've attached a link in the description. It's a masterpiece. I talked a lot about the Strawberry Queens' history, but if you want to know what it looked like in the last decade or so, that is the article to read. But if you open that article, you'll notice the cover image. It's the Queen and her court in their dresses and jewelry alongside a farmer. The girls are standing in a field, the farmer emerging from his vehicle, and the girls are barefoot in the strawberry fields. Shelby tells me that that image, while maybe a hit nationwide in its publication, was not so popular amongst the residents of Plant City. The queen barefoot in the strawberry fields? Regardless of what we may think of it now, Shelby tells me it was quite the scandal in Plant City 13 years ago when the article came out. And yet, despite all that time, it still popped up in our conversation as, of course, a footnote, a tangent. Perhaps there's nothing more to be said, but it's still part of the story, still clinging to the narrative for all time. I'm sure some would rather those footnotes be forgotten, but alas, that's not how it works. History has a knack for remembering everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as this episode proves, I think, sometimes the footnotes are the story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, welcome. I am so glad that you are here. I am so grateful for all the new listeners this season. It has been such a joy getting to know you, getting to hear your responses to the show. It means a lot to me. If you have only listened to the recent episodes and you want to check out more of the back catalog, there are actually a few episodes a lot like this one, short stories that have been cut from other episodes that I wanted to tell you more about. At the beginning of last year, there's a story about Brownie the dog and other tales that I had to cut from that season. Last summer, there's a couple of short summer tales that I just had to tell you. And of course, there is the Wait 5 Minutes holiday special, which has a ton of short stories from previous guests. So go check those out if you want to see a little more of what these short story episodes can bring. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me when you tell me what you love about the show. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I'm often posting pictures on the social media, pictures of figures or events or documents or even some vintage postcards that I find on the social media account. So if you want some more visual representation of these stories, go follow WFMPod on all the social medias. 
I look forward to hearing from you. Though you didn't hear their voices in this episode necessarily, this episode would not exist without the help of the guests that helped me in the original episode, so I'd like to thank Mike Bunn, Sean Lee Breeding, and Shelby Bender. All three of them are incredible experts in their respective fields. I'm so grateful to have had them on the show. If you want to check out their episodes where they talk at length about the 14th Colony, Bald Eagles, and Plant City, respectively, go check out those episodes. There's links to those in the episode description. I'm so grateful for all of their help. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. Go check out more of their fabulous music at the link below. All right, so we are in the final stretch until the end of the season. There are some amazing stories coming in April. I am so excited for them. There are some incredible guests on the next couple episodes, and we are going to be traveling all over the state exploring various stories that I have been wanting to tell for a very long time. So next week, one of my favorite people is back on the show, Brendan Byrne, host of the space podcast, Are We There Yet? from WMFE. Brendan is the best and we have an amazing conversation about the future of NASA's Artemis program. You have got to tune in. Brendan is the best. That episode will be out next Monday. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, wear a mask when you go outside, and make sure that you are getting your vaccination as soon as you are able. And, of course, drink more water. Have a good week. I will see you next Monday. Take care of yourself.